It is beyond wonderful to be back here in Estes today. And I want to give a greeting to those of you who are in other places around campus or coming online. I'm usually sitting where you are. And actually, I, it was beyond my fondest hopes that we would do this in person. Every day I was waiting for a phone call or an email saying, we're giving up and doing it on Zoom. Can you believe last week I did a Zoom ordination service? I was supposed to show up in New York State, but the governor wouldn't let me come because I was in Michigan and I was on the quarantine list, so I couldn't go. So the superintendent laid her hands on the ordinance, and I put mine up next to the screen while I gave the questions, and it actually turned out to be a meaningful and wonderful service. We've learned how to adapt, haven't we? But I'm telling you, it's beautiful to see you. I recognize some faces, I think, but it's sort of hard <laughs> from, from the mask up. Anyway, thank you so much for, for the Alumni of the Year Award. That's just amazing. And I'm grateful. I, I have a row of free Methodist friends here that came in just to be with me today. So it's a double treat. Thank you. Well, I know almost nothing about wine. So for much of my life, some of the most prominent symbols in the Bible have been invisible to me. My limited experience with vino blinded me for many years to some of the rich, beautiful, and powerful images in Scripture. Let me put it this way. In my Free Methodist family, grapes were for eating, or maybe for turning into grape juice, which we almost never drank except once a quarter in a tiny little communion cup at church. One time, my grandma served me home-canned grape juice. It was brownish-purple, unpasteurized, pulpy, and not nearly as sweet as Welch's. No thanks, Grandma. Most of you aren't old enough to remember this. A few of you are. One of my earliest introductions to how wine is made came from an episode of I Love Lucy, where Lucy and Ethel were stomping the grapes in a giant vat until they were stained purple from head to toe. Ew, bare feet squishing the grapes? No thanks, Lucy. After I left the Beeson program here, I moved to Rochester, New York, near the Finger Lakes with their famous vineyards. Down in Naples, I learned the proper way to eat a Concord grape, and I'm not even sure if you know how to do that. By the way, the grape pie in Naples is to die for. Walking through the vines, you pluck a little cluster of grapes off the vine, hold one grape up to your mouth, and then squeeze it till that succulent little thing pops into your mouth. Then you suck the goodness out of the skin for a minute and throw the skin on the ground. And then you savor the cool, soft little sweet ball in your mouth, move it around on your tongue, and then you swallow it whole, seeds and all. That's because if you try to chew it, you're going to crunch on some bitter seeds and you don't want that. Now, never mind what your mom told you about how if you swallow seeds, watermelons or grapes will grow in your stomach. It's not true. And then... Repeat this with another grape again and again. Delicious. During one such grape-eating lesson, I asked my friend Paul if he knew the owner of the vineyard we were walking through. Nope. I guess in Naples they go by Deuteronomy 23:24, which says, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. The Bible is filled with references like this. Grapes are mentioned 52 times, drink offerings 66 times, vineyards 108 times, and wine 240. 
It's going to be a long sermon, isn't it? <laughs> it's obvious when you go looking for it that the cultures of the Old and New Testament were vinocentric. Grapes, vineyards, and wine are the stuff of life. Actually, they're the picture of the good life. When you're nicely settled into the land and living at peace with your neighbors, it's said that you eat the grapes and drink the wine of your own vineyard. Reasonably, then, God uses this illustration from their everyday lives to describe his relationship with Israel. He's the owner of a vineyard, a vine dresser, and a cultivator of grapes. Over and over, he tells his people Israel through the prophets that he has tenderly cared for every detail of the success of his vineyard, preparing the ground, planting good vines in fertile soil, and protecting them from wild animals and thieves. But eventually, the relationship has turned into painful disappointment. The passage from Isaiah 5 that we heard a few minutes ago is tragic. The use of the past tense in verse 7 breaks my heart. Listen again. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Past tense. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. The old covenant draws to a close with the prophetic lament of God. The precious vineyard has gone to ruin. The early books of the Old Testament prescribe drink offerings to God. In Jeremiah and the Minor Prophets, toward the end of the Old Testament, the people have forsaken the worship of the one true God and are pouring out drink offerings to the Queen of Heaven. God's dreams for them are dashed. Now, I've never yet been to Israel, so I had something to learn from J.D. Walt on the Seedbed Daily Text a few weeks ago, and in fact, I learned something from him every single day. J.D. pointed out a few weeks ago that as Jesus walked alongside the temple in Jerusalem with his disciples, they could have seen vineyards in the Kidron Valley on one side, and on the other side, stone carvings of grapevines in the temple walls. What a contrast. The real, luscious plants, fully alive in the moment, green, spreading vines, absorbing sunshine and rain, the roots drawing nourishment from the soil, the whole vine filled with the essence of grape as the branches grow and bear new fruit. Or, on the other hand, stone carvings, a monument to the memory of a vineyard. No comparison. We believe this is where Jesus and his disciples may have been walking when he spoke these words recorded in John 15, 1 to 8. It's very familiar, you know it. Listen again. I am the true vine. Mic drop. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener, still. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean or pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As Jesus so often does, he picks up an old covenant image and modulates it to a whole new level. A new key, Albin. He is the true vine. And here's the unimaginable part. We together have the privilege of being one with him, part of him, sharing his essence, co-creating fruit through him. As we abide in Jesus and he abides in us, the Father's dream of a fruitful vine comes to life. Without Jesus, we can do nothing, but if we remain in Jesus and his words take up residence in our hearts and among us in our conversations and relationships, they create in us good desires that we express in asking for good things, and those things come to pass, glorifying the Father and confirming our identity as Jesus' disciples. Of course, it's clear from the context of this passage that the Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who indwells us, bringing the presence of Jesus into our very spirits and consciousness. We abide in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. As in the Old Covenant, the Father is pictured as the vine dresser or gardener. This image blows my mind. Jesus' Father. Our Heavenly Father is intimately involved in the process of trimming away dead, unproductive branches on the vine and skillfully pruning the fruitful ones to expand their productivity. This implies both judgment and decisive corrective action for long-term gain. I spent a lot of years picturing this arrangement in my own individual life and my personal relationship with Jesus, but really, Jesus is speaking in the plural. The disciples, plural, are the branches, plural, which bear fruit of the vine. We, plural, are organically connected to one another since we are in Jesus, and together we produce fruit. The scriptures are full of answers to the question, what is the fruit? We think of evangelistic effectiveness, multiplication of ministries, or the fruit of the Spirit, or other good images of fruitfulness, But as we all learned in inductive Bible study, we should look first at the immediate context. So from chapter 13 through 17, Jesus has been teaching on the primacy of love and the coming of the Holy Spirit to make us become the people God envisions for us to be. Our love for one another is fruit-bearing evidence that brings glory to God and witnesses to the world of the authenticity of Jesus. We are to be an appetizer, full of the flavor of Jesus, whose fruit we are producing. To return to our Old Testament lesson for just a moment, let's consider some of the description of good grapes from the Isaiah 5 passage. He looked for justice, that would be good grapes, but found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, good grapes, but he heard cries of distress, The good grapes are justice and righteousness. The bad grapes may be wild grapes or sour grapes, amassing houses and fields to the detriment of the poor, arrogance, ironically, it goes on to say, drunkenness, 
disregard for the deeds of the Lord and the work of his hands, calling evil good and good evil, putting darkness for light and light for darkness, putting bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, being wise in our own eyes and clever in our own sight, acquitting the guilty for a bribe, but denying justice to the innocent. That's all the bad grapes that made God give up on that vineyard. Well, he didn't give up, did he? These descriptors of bad grapes, judged so by the owner of the vineyard, should give us pause. How do we measure fruitfulness? Do we value the twin virtues of justiceness and righteousness as much as God does? Or do we use a, a false scale to weigh our fruit? During the past several months, I've wondered often if God is accomplishing a major pruning in the church through the coronavirus pandemic. It's been very painful. It's still painful. And we're experiencing many losses. In addition to what everyone has lost, lives, livelihoods, security, normal way of life, specifically the church has felt hindered, thwarted, in some cases battered. For a while we had to abandon the use of our church buildings altogether, and even now far fewer people are attending in-person services in most of the country. We've had to cut programs and budgets and cancel all sorts of plans. It's been frustrating. Simultaneously, the pain of racial injustice has reached a a tipping point, and the church in America has had to do some pretty serious, deep soul-searching. So a certain level of nostalgia for returning to what we used to call normal has been sacrificed on that front because we've realized that normal was in need of some major improvement. On top of all that, we've been through the most polarizing and divisive election season in our lifetimes, and it's still at a point of high drama a full week after election day. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Could God be using this disruptive season to renovate the church? Free Methodist Superintendent Michael Forney thinks so. He reminds us that before the pandemic, the church was in fact failing to reach our communities and especially the younger generation failing to make deeply committed disciples and blind to many injustices in our church and our society. The first step is repentance. Then he says we need to wait on the Lord to see what he might be up to. He says, and just consider this for a moment, the convergence of pandemic restrictions and technological advances has challenged us to do church in a new way. He sees that snipping the tie to Sunday morning only in favor of a more daily integrated approach to accessing fellowship, worship, small groups, corporate prayer, witness, and service could be a pruning of an unbiblical segregation of worship from our daily lives. He's noticing also that geographic limitations of the church are being pruned off as people from far-flung places are gathering virtually. I know an ordinary pastor here in the U.S. who now preaches to more than 100 Pakistanis every week. In fact, his congregation in Pakistan is larger than the one he has here, and he's never even been over there. And as Michael says, mission-minded pastors and churches are discovering great flexibility and creativity as 2020 has forced them outside the four walls of their church and the four walls of the box in their heads. Now they're reaching out to serve their neighbors and their communities. Every month when I meet Latin American leaders on Zoom, I hear reports of new house churches being planted during the pandemic. 
in our July meeting, we were up to 204 new churches during the pandemic. I haven't heard a number since then, but I've heard stories. Let me tell you about one country that I'm not even allowed to say on the internet, but it starts with V. And in that place, the government said no more than 10 people can gather. Well, there was a small group leader who had 20 in his group. So he asked his superintendent, what do I do, divide it in half? And he said, no, divide into four groups of five. And that way you'll have room to grow. And now all four have doubled to 10, and it's time for them to multiply again. And new leaders are being raised up, and new churches are being started. And every week, I see videos and pictures of baptisms from all over the world. The church is being the church. I'm challenged to look for where the hand of God may be cutting off some dead branches, judging some things as bad grapes or dead grapes or no grapes, or maybe pruning for greater fruitfulness. Let's wait on the Lord. While we're thinking about the vine, let's also consider the wine for a few minutes. In Jesus, in, Jesus says in Luke 5, 37 and 38, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now in 1975, Free Methodist theologian and my friend and mentor, Howard Snyder, who happens to be sitting right down here in the front, explored this metaphor in a whole book called The Problem of Wineskins. By the way, on the first page, he also admits that he has very little knowledge of literal wine or wineskins, like I confessed at the beginning of this sermon. Call it the teetotaler's disadvantage. <laughs> of course, not all free Methodists are teetotalers anymore, but that's another story. Dr. Snyder writes that the new wine of the gospel will constantly require new wineskins, new forms, structures, and human-made containers. Just as Jesus' life and ministry couldn't be contained by Judaism, in every passing generation, this fermenting, expanding, alive, renewing life in Jesus will require expandable new models, traditions, and patterns. That which is essential and primary, the wine, requires constant renewal of that which is secondary, but also necessary and useful, the wineskins, traditions, structures, and patterns. For example, in the problem of wineskins, this man advocated selling our church properties and giving the money to the poor, and then gathering in small groups and homes or rented spaces or outdoor spaces. I was reading the new edition of his book recently and I noticed that he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer who had written the same thing. Howard, you've always been a radical. In 2020 though, some missionally minded church leaders are actually considering this radical idea. Watching their large church complexes, multi-million dollar investments sitting empty for months, they start dreaming about what they could do differently how they could be turned into shared ministry and outreach spaces used by several churches and either other community groups seven days a week. Or, of course, all over the world in places where the church is expanding rapidly, it's doing so without buildings through models like Bruce Bennett's community church planting and other home-based structures. Of course, in the most remarkable and well-known application of the metaphor of wine, Jesus fills the image with ultimate meaning as he inaugurates the new covenant 
which surpasses the old, he gives his disciples a sign. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, 27 to 29. Jesus' last meal with them ended with a last cup of wine. Never again could they taste their ordinary beverage without their very taste buds recalling this sign, this sacrament. Notice the graphic image he gave them. It's buried right there in the words we've read and heard a hundred times. His blood will be poured out, spilled. It will no longer be contained inside his body where blood belongs, but will be poured out at the flogging post on the Via Dolorosa and from the cross. It wasn't until 2019 that I finally internalized the connection between the crushing and pressing of grapes to make wine and the bruising and piercing of Jesus to spill blood. It came about because of a song, and I bet a bunch of you know that song, Hillsong Worship's New Wine. I'm going to sing a little snippet, and I'm going to invite you to join me, okay? In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. Lord, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. So, 2019. Remember that year? It was so long ago. After a process of nominations and interviews, nine Free Methodist elders were still being considered by the Bishop's Search Committee for an eventual slate of five nominees for three positions. The nine of us got on a Zoom call to pray together for God's will to be manifested in the process of winnowing the group down and eventually the election. We expressed our mutual respect and love and pledged to pray for one another throughout the process and to gladly serve the church under whatever new board of bishops would emerge. And we all meant it. Maybe that seems like an unusual posture for nine competitors to take. It was. It was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Then we started texting songs to one another. The first was, is he worthy? I can remember being in Nairobi, Kenya, and walking for three hours with that song just looping. Is he worthy? He is worthy. And the next was New Wine. And then another five or six songs joined our playlist. The process got painful. I really debated whether to air our dirty laundry, but at Asbury, we're all family, so here goes. 
Three men and two women were chosen to fill the slate of nominees. And by the way, we had never had a female bishop. But we were all white. A portion of the church went into grief and sorrow and frustration that we would inevitably carry on our 160-year history of an all-white bishopric in the United States. Even we nominees were disappointed at this reality. As a church, we haven't done well at diversifying at the leadership level, or frankly, at any level here in the US. I won't describe the next few months except to say that eventually one man removed his name from consideration and two other men were added, one African-American and one Latino. We continued to pray and wait. For several months, this song became the soundtrack of my life. Daily, hourly, moment by moment, I experienced a kind of crushing and pressing Passages like Paul's description that he had learned how to abound and how to be abased came to mind. I remember telling my husband, I finally know what it feels like to be abased. Paul's description of his life as a drink offering, being poured out, became my lived experience. It's hard to describe. I lived in cycles of surrender, continually yielding to the careful hand of the winemaker. New wine. Bring it. Do it. Make me whatever you want me to be. The process took me back almost 50 years to my calling as a teenager, which was followed by 12 years of verifying and clarifying my call, because I'd never seen a female pastor, and I knew plenty of people who thought it was against God's will and God's word. Yet the Holy Spirit persisted. I remember so vividly the Lord's drawing me, wooing me, inviting me to serve him in his church like this. Eventually, way back then, my reply was Mary's. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. At our general conference in July 2019, two men and I, all three Asbury alums, by the way, were elected on the first ballot. All white pastors who have worked and prayed for greater racial reconciliation in the church for decades. And we are working intently across the church to foster greater inclusion in our movement. Our board of administration is now the most diverse it has ever been. We're making some progress. And now in 2020, a year of great disorientation, perhaps we should all sing this song, pray this prayer. I came here with nothing but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. On the day of Pentecost, the believers were accused of being drunk, being filled with new wine. Oh, I yearn for that renewal in the church where the presence of the living God in us is so effervescent, so overflowing its containers, so in danger of bursting the old wineskins that nobody around us can miss it. Our Savior Jesus continually calls us to his table to taste again his sacrifice of love for us. Hear the good news. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And finally, hear the good news once again. Behold, I make all things new. Amen. <laughs>